Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I think some people who bring a different energy to the stage can get a little rougher with audiences in ways that are, like, sometimes very fun. But I can't get away with it. If, like, someone yells something out and I'm like, hey, shut your fucking mouth. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it is very jarring. Welcome back to Working. I'm your guest host for the week, Cameron Drews. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Hey, Karen. It's great to be hosting the show with you again. Yeah. And I'm really excited for this week's episode. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners whose voice we just heard at the top of the show? Yeah, so for this uh, Cameron and Karen episode, we have (laughs) as our guest Josh Gondelman, a comedy writer, producer, author, and stand-up comedian whose work you may be familiar with from shows like Dezus and Miro, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and also his recent comedy special, People Pleaser. Okay, so I should show all my cards here, Karen, and reveal that (laughs) I'm definitely familiar with Josh's work, and I think <laughs> anyone who sees live comedy around New York City with any regularity will probably come across mm-hmm. Josh. He is in demand and out there. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, if you do see him, he probably will stick in your memory because he does have a pretty unique voice and style, right? Yeah, I feel like he's known to be, and this is going to sound pretty simplistic, but he's mm. known to be a very nice guy. Like, yeah. he's very kind, thoughtful, and positive. For instance, he has a Substack newsletter called That's Marvelous, which yeah. is self-described as being, quote, a newsletter for pep talks and general enthusiasm. And I would say that that is the the vibe that he presents as a performer. Yeah, I've seen him do pep talks on Twitter, too. Every once yeah. in a while, he will just tweet, does anyone need a pep talk? and strangers will reply and he will give them polite encouragement (laughs) and it's very nice and i imagine you saved a little bit of this interview for slate plus members what Mm -hmm. can they expect to hear at the end of the show I guess this is sort of related, but for Slate Plus, we talk about the difference between writing for oneself versus writing for someone else, not just Mm. in terms of a setting like Last Week Tonight, but also in terms of like fiction and narrative writing as per his work on the new season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's awesome. I know that Josh is a talented TV writer, so I'm excited to hear how he approaches that writing. So listeners, if you are a Slate Plus member, make sure to stick around for that segment at the end of the show. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. Members get ad-free podcasts, bonus segments on our show and other Slate podcasts, bonus full episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll get full access to all of the articles on slate.com. You'll never run into the pesky paywall when you're trying to read Dear Prudence. (laughs) These memberships are really important to the health of Slate. So once again, please sign up if you can. And that URL again is slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's move on to Karen's conversation with the extremely charming Josh Gondelman. Hello, Josh, welcome to working. Hello, Karen. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to chat with you. So we're here mainly to talk about your recent special, which came out last year, called People Pleaser, which is such a delight. And I wanted to start with, I guess, a kind of macro question, which is, at what point did you know that you wanted to tape a special? And what are the initial steps that someone takes towards doing that? So it's a goal that I've had for a really long time, was to do Mm. an hour special with a video component. I've done albums in the past. Yeah. I was just starting to perform live in-person stand-up again. This was May 2021. Mm. And I'd mostly either been doing Zoom or nothing for about 15 months, I think. And I got a call from my agent. And they said, Comedy Dynamics, this production company, is recording 
a bunch of new hour stand-up specials. Would you like to record one with them? And I said, that sounds really exciting. And they said, great. Can you be ready to do it in a month? Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. And so it was not like a soup to nuts generation of new material over a month. In fact, it was probably not that much written in that last month, a few lines here and there for a few jokes. But it was um, that month was spent kind of figuring out what the set would be from my extant material Uh, because again i hadn't been really performing live at all in person yeah so one of the really wonderful things about like that format is you have these jokes that i guess like when you take them out of context can seem kind of disparate but when you watch the special it's an overarching kind of one hour thing like contained thing and so i wanted to ask like how do you figure out the flow of the hour especially as you say like if you're not doing it soup to nuts, like if you are taking like pieces of old things that you'd already kind of worked on, uh, how did you figure out the flow? So it's a lot of just doing, right? Like Mm. I'm working on a new hour now that I've been writing, I guess. Yeah, thank you. That I've been writing since that recorded, which is June 2021. So Mm. I've had almost two years, but the, Mm -hmm. the people pleaser when I recorded it was like, half new stuff that I'd written since my last album and then half mm-hmm. and this is such a self-aggrandizing term a greatest hits of like stuff <laughs> that I loved for years yeah. but I never put out with video as the medium so right. it, the only way to really put it together was like I wrote down a set list of like I think I should try it this way and mm-hmm. then started doing it live you know whether it was short sets to figure out like okay this 15 minute chunk works together mm-hmm. and then longer sets where you kind of in addition to like feeling the flow that you like impose on it like with the order that you decide to do things in you also kind of feel like the connectivity between what you're talking about where like not just like the segues of like speaking of marriage but you go oh (laughs) i'm talking a lot about this thing or this this part of the end could call back so neatly to this part of the beginning. But Mm -hmm. when I'm only doing 15 minute sets around New York city, I don't notice until I start doing this hour out out on the road or, or in the city. And that part is like, I don't know. I just am like such a, I really enjoy all the parts of it, like the drilling down and kind of tweaking the individual jokes and stories and bits. And then the like, taking all those layers and then frosting the cake, if that makes sense. (laughs) And being like, now it's one thing. Yeah. um, And this is a little bit of a sidebar, but since you brought up like the concept of greatest hits, like within your work, like how much of that has to do with your personal opinion of a joke where it's like, I think this is really good. I'm really fond of it versus like, does it kill every night or something like that? I think it was a lot of stuff that I really liked and more than stuff that I'm like, oh, this line gets the biggest pop, so right. so it has to be in the special. Like this, you know, there's stuff that I've I've done through the years that that really killed that I've never really recorded in this way. But I'm just like, I don't think that quite represents like who I am mm. now. So it kind of felt like the stuff that really resonates with people, like the stuff that really sticks around and that when people see me, they go, Oh, I was hoping you would tell this story. And like that kind of stuff helped inform you a little more than just like you know, the line that gets the biggest laugh in the history of me being on stage. But like the (laughs) stuff that feels the most me is what I was really trying to to get across and have it be all stuff that kills. But like the idea was I was really trying to be like, okay, how do I, with this hour, for people that haven't seen me, go, this is the guy that I am. And then Mm -hmm. for people that have seen me before or, or know about me a little bit, how do I expand upon that and fill this thing with stuff that they want to be like, oh, I've got to show my friend this bit Mm -hmm. that I've loved that I've never had the video version to like send to them before. Yeah. Um, I love what you're saying about like realizing like this thing that I wrote several years ago is not really me anymore. It's Mm -hmm. not representative of what I'm doing right now or who I am right now. Like at what point can you feel that like as you are working with material, like at what point do you know, like, I think it's time to retire this bit? That's a great question. Some of it is like stuff that's just not factually true anymore. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. it's, I think, harder to finesse dating material when you're a person who's been married for like several years, right? And it takes like a little bit of additional, like I've seen people do it really skillfully, but it takes an additional like, this is what it's like. And now this is what it's like. And you only get, I think, so many of those narratives to bring people along with so it's like Mm -hmm. i have all this material of i used to be a teacher and 
you know, occasionally if I'm doing like a corporate gig or something where I have to be squeaky clean, I'll still break out <laughs> some of those stories. But it's not stuff that feels super relevant to my life now. And it requires mm-hmm. like creating this backstory of like, okay, here I am now. But like back then I was this guy. And then sometimes it's just like there's some times when you get on stage and you're just like, oh, I'm not connected with this. Like you can mm-hmm. see this like I'm reciting i'm not performing i'm not invested in what i'm saying because it just kind of feels like and you know maybe there are other people that can get over a little better but i'm uh more of a writer than an actor as my late grandmother Mm. used to tell me really (laughs) she didn't use used to is a strong word she did tell me that once after seeing me in a high school production (laughs) that i was in Okay, at least it was high school and not like recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's she's such a lovely person and meant no ill yeah, by of it, course. but I absolutely there I think is a reason that it stuck with me for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um okay, so to wheel things back a little bit, one of the things that you mentioned was something that I really wanted to dig into, which is in the hour like having these figuring out like what is a recurring bit or how to tie uh different things together that's like one of my favorite things I think about like going to a comedy show or a comedy special like a long forum show where it's like when the bit comes back I think there's nothing like funnier than that there's nothing more rewarding than that so like what is the process of like figuring out what is worth coming back to or like what will recur sure well I think sometimes it is you feel the structure right where you're like oh mm-hmm. I really want to talk about a um relationships. So like there's something about relationships that will keep coming back and I'm going to come back to it with intent and to you know to build thematically through that. And and that's I think one thing. The the hour that I'm working on now is kind of a lot about trying to age not physically gracefully, <laughs> but the the idea of like how to like stay mentally malleable. And yeah. and so that comes back a lot. And like in this hour, I there's a bit up top about, and I'm sorry to talk about stand-up that people haven't seen um, and that you haven't seen, but where I have a bit up top about the late 1900s, like teenagers <laughs> calling the 90s the late 1900s, and that comes back, right? I will say, I'll talk about mental health, and I go, you know, when I was a kid in the late 1900s, our attitudes towards mental health were very different, and like, mm-hmm. as another little bit. And so sometimes you can think about it in advance. And then other times on stage, I feel like I go, oh, this is an extension of that in a way that I didn't realize till I said it all out loud back to back. Mm -hmm. And then you go, oh, this thing is really fun to like sprinkle throughout, right? A little phrase or um, just like referencing something that you said before, a theme. And, And I think finding those connections organically is so delightful. And like, sometimes it's just about recapturing the moment on stage where you discover it in person and then allowing future audiences to share that moment of discovery with you. Yeah. I want to talk about the work you're doing on your new special, but I want to talk about crowd work a little first. Sure. Because one of the things I was really impressed with with People Pleaser is there is a little bit of audience work, (laughs) like a little bit of audience interaction, I guess, is the best way to put it. And that's an aspect of a recording that you have no real control over. Like you you mentioned in the moment, like people are encouraged to kind of be polite or like not talk back. Yes. But you can't really control it. And even at a time as important as a taping like this. So how do you deal with an audience? And what was that learning curve like? Oh, you know, I don't seek out to do a ton of crowd work. And especially when you're recording something, right? You want, unless you're recording specifically crowd work, you want kind of a control group, right? Not a bunch (laughs) of variables. But I also do really love being present in the room. And I think Mm -hmm. those moments really stand out sometimes. Like if you're like, rather than excising something that feels unpredictable, it like creates, I think, intimacy with the audience that's watching at home, right? Because they're Mm -hmm. not just seeing a a play that was recorded, they're watching something like an organic thing that was like a special one-time only performance. I think that's like, I, I love that feeling when something feels like a really specific moment that's captured. Like, so... The idea of, I said, I, I know the moment you're talking about, because mm-hmm. I said, I talk about someone referring to their sexual history as their body count. Yeah. And a, uh, a woman in the back of the room went, oh, no, like, yeah. audibly. <laughs> and it was a pretty big room, 
but not so big that I right. wasn't going to hear it and that the mics weren't going to pick it up. And then I remarked on the fact that she reacted to that and that became kind of its own moment and then I kind of folded that back into the bed. Yeah. I have one friend who refers to the people he slept with as his body count. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Someone who is coached not to say anything during this taping just went, "No." <laughs> That's how no that phrase is. Similarly, right? There's this runner in the special about the audience applauding for the concept of grandmothers and moms and dogs, right? (laughs) And that's, like, really fun where it, like, doesn't diverge too far from the path I set out, but it's like, I'm here with you. Okay, you're the same person from no earlier. (laughs) So we know you're against body count, (laughs) pro Fiona Apple, and as a member of this audience, in favor of moms and dogs. I think I'm (laughs) starting to create a profile. So there's, like, the vein of what I wanted to talk about of like kind of gentleness, I think mm-hmm. is, and like hopefulness is kind of the feeling I was trying to imbue that special with specifically. Yeah. And then there was this like second hand juggling a different ball or two different balls. That was the like being in this room with this audience, which is, which is so much fun. And I think like disallowing the fun of that, like, you know, and just, like, executing is, is like, <laughs> unless you're performing a, a show that is, like, truly a staged piece of theater that you're trying right. to record, right? Like, I would be cutting off the fun I was allowed to have in, mm-hmm. the, in the room. And then also cutting off the, this kind of, like, push and pull with the audience that was so engaged with this dynamic as well. Yeah, but it was really impressive to watch because you handle it so well in the special like it feels so organic and so right and it's not like it totally goes off in a different tangent and then you have to really reel it back in do you feel like you've always kind of innately been good at like doing that immediate mental arithmetic to say like oh like I can do this and like still drive back or was it something that you had to work on over time I was so uncomfortable on stage (laughs) when I started when I started doing stand-up I like my speaking voice I was like nervous and I just like was like quieter and like it just I didn't sound like as much like myself yeah but I do think that just practice has made me more comfortable with like oh, I'm in charge here. Mm -hmm. It was also a learning curve where I think some people who have a different energy, who bring a different energy to the stage, can get a little rougher with audiences in ways that are like sometimes very fun. But I can't get away with it because I have a kind of a softness on stage that if like someone yells something out and I'm like, Hey, shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> like, it is very jarring. And it is like, yeah. people are like, oh, you were being fake before. And now this is the real you. So I, it's like been a real kind of a long time project of like learning how to quietly control a crowd in a way that like, I don't know, you know, that they don't feel like that they're being manipulated in the mm-hmm. same way they would if someone was like, shut up, you loser. <laughs> where it's like a more direct dominance of the audience. And Mm -hmm. that's not to speak ill of like that kind of performance. It's just like, I am very ineffective of that mode. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's hard as someone who is also, I think a little on the softer side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, you brought up something that I wanted to dig into, which is the idea of like a sort of stage persona, like knowing you, having met you in person, like I know you are Mm -hmm. also just very delightful and kind as a human being. But I would say like, there is obviously a little bit of a divide between who you are personally and who you choose to like put out on stage. Sure. How do you... I guess, navigate that or choose what you want to dial up or down in front of an audience? I think a big part of it is like kind of being a little extra upbeat and like occasionally like a touch more naive than I am in Mm -hmm. person or a little like softer than I am in person is partly a way to like differentiate myself like it it is the thing rather than chasing something that other people do really well right who dial up the kind of gruffness yeah so like especially when i go up somewhere like the comedy cellar where there are so many super strong comics and many of whom have like a really strong kind of new york city comedy club edge right. that is really powerful with audiences and is really like strong and effective i think instead of going like 
I'm going to do kind of a C plus B minus version of mm-hmm. that. I'm going to try to cultivate a different kind of energy, like a, a highlight a different part of myself in a way that will feel like a more specific energy and not like, oh, we, we're seeing like a third rate Dave Attell, right? Like, <laughs> oh, they're, you're like, we're, we're seeing this guy that maybe he's the only one of these on the show. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned earlier also as well that you were, you felt uncomfortable on stage when you were first starting out. Like how, what was the journey like from point A to point B where you figured out like, this is how I, I guess, make myself more comfortable on stage? Or was there a point where you were trying to do what you were saying, like the more New York version of it? I, well, I started in Boston and I, mm-hmm. I do feel like Boston similarly is yeah. like <laughs> people that come up and just murder, like, <laughs> and, and just like mowing down audiences. And so there was kind of that pressure too. And I think there was like, in my first year, especially a lot of like trying to do a version of like, oh, this is like a clever joke or this is like a funny thing that mm-hmm. like, it. not that I didn't think it because I did have the idea, but like didn't feel like something that I would ever say off stage. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It was just like, oh, I invented this as a thing to say for the stage because I thought that people would think it was funny. And occasionally I'd be like dirty in ways that didn't feel like me um, rather than I sometimes I'm dirty in ways that feel like me. And that like, mm-hmm. is a, it's, it's like a different <laughs> vibe, but it took like a year for me to feel like partly I had jokes that would work and that was really helpful. And then it also just, I think I started to say things that felt a little more like my own particular point of view. And mm-hmm. so I had to like, act less hard to say them. You know, it was a little less of like, who's the guy that would say these things? It's like, oh, right. I'm me. And then these are the things that sound like my thoughts because they are. Yeah. Okay, we'll be right back with more of Karen's conversation with Josh Gondelman after this. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. 
Hey everybody, this is our once per show reminder to feel free to get in touch with us if you have any questions about creativity or work habits or productivity hacks, or maybe there's a guest you think we should interview on the show. Send us an email at workingatslate.com or give us a call at 304-933-WORK and leave a message. If you ask a question and we like it, we might even answer that question on an episode of Working Overtime. That's our spin-off show that comes out every other Thursday. Again, that email is working at slate.com and the phone number is 304-933-WORK. And one last thing, if you like the show, please make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And hey, maybe give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We would really appreciate it. All right, now back to Karen's conversation with Josh Gondelman. My understanding of uh, video comedy specials is that they're taped over the course of a couple of nights. And I think I recall that that was a case for you as well. Although, of course, you do something similar in putting on a set during a live show. But in this specific context, what sort of things do you have to consider in performing and knowing these nights are going to be cut together? So this was one show. This special oh my God, came okay. from one show. Yeah. which I And I've done with audio. I've done it both ways. Okay. I've I've done it like, okay, stitching together two nights or just doing one night of performance or one show in one night even. And, and that's what this was. Um I, I had the room once and the crew once and the um you know the cameras would turn on once. Yeah. So that presents a different challenge, right? Cutting mm-hmm. together between a couple nights, I think, is kind of like matching your energy and making sure and like picking kind of the base that's usually I think people do it this way when you do multiple nights or multiple shows you pick the one where you're like most of it will be from this and then we'll add a couple things like oh I forgot this joke the first night or like I flubbed this or this didn't quite hit and we'll just kind of slide this in to cover where something didn't quite work Mm -hmm. but with one show you have like however many cameras that you Mm had and linear footage of whatever 65 75 minutes i was on stage um somewhere in there and so the challenge is like making it feel like nothing was taken out right over the course of this hour even though i took probably 10 15 minutes out of the live set and so that is it like and, and part of it like i think I got to work really closely with with the editor who mm-hmm. worked on it and, and they they were like really skilled and did such a nice job and but I think having worked as a TV producer with specifically right. Jesus and Mero for a couple of years before we worked on this edit really helped me think about like okay I know what my camera angles are I know that if I lose 30 seconds where I'm kind of hemming and hawing <laughs> then I can cover it with this kind of camera angle or audience reaction shot Oh, and then come back to me and like keep the audio smooth, you know, while while the video is cheated a little bit more. And so like having done that job really helped me in the edit feel like confident being like, oh, I know what the the colors of on my palette are and I know how to mm-hmm. employ them. Uh, so in this case, like the company came to you with an offer to do a special. Mm-hmm. But it has been, even from my perspective, which is not that versed in comedy, it's been wild to see, like, the change in the landscape. Like, part of it is obviously just the egalitarian nature of the internet, where anyone can do anything and upload it anywhere. Um, But then, like, I guess, like, Comedy Central, like, the name still holds value. But again, I don't know what channel it's on, because I don't have cable. Sure. And I don't know, like, the... How have you, as someone who has been working in comedy for a while, like, felt that landscape shift? How has that affected your work? It's enormously different. And I think it is, on one hand, it's so freeing Mm -hmm. to go like, oh, the price to shoot an hour of comedy on your own and make it look good is so much lower than it was when I started in Mm -hmm. in stand-up, which is like such a fascinating and seismic technological shift. So there's that on its own. And then there's the culture, right? Because I think... Even as recently as like eight or 10 years ago, people could have been shooting hour specials for not a ton of money and putting them out en masse the way they are, you know, the way that stand-up is being released now. But I don't think it just culturally, I don't think we were there yet where it didn't feel like an event in the same way. Like you can go like, this is going to be on my YouTube page tonight Mm -hmm. at eight. And then it can feel like an event if people are excited for it. And then I think additionally, with these methods of 
distribution. And this is like, stop me if this is too tangenty. <laughs> but I think there is also this interesting tension creatively between the idea of like creating small bite-sized units of comedy that mm-hmm. can be shared on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and other apps that I'm too old to know what they are. Uh, <laughs> Truth Social, um, wherever. Uh, but like wherever you, you know, the the tension between doing stuff like that that's renewable and you can have new stuff all the time and the idea of like building towards this cohesive hour that you're yeah. touring with and want to release. And it's, it's like a really interesting creative tension where I feel like th- they're – I'd heard, and maybe this is less the case now than it was a couple of years ago, the big streamers and and networks were kind of looking for like a big splash, something like what Mike Birbiglia does with his shows right. or um, Hassan Minaj, um, Hannah Gadsby, right? Like these kinds of cohesive, of a piece shows, like a show that is all of a piece with itself, not that they're yeah. all the same as each other. And, and that feels so remote from the idea of like a... 42 second riff with a live crowd or like crowd work done with the intention of capturing it and sharing it on social media to grow an audience to come see you do this other thing. And so it really feels like an interesting balancing act trying to consider both of those needs when you're like writing this new hour. Yeah, the the social media clip thing is really interesting. Like I was talking to a friend of a friend who was working on a movie for a streamer and they and one of the production notes were like we need more things that can just like go up as a clip like on TikTok or on Twitter or whatever. Like yeah. which is not necessarily what you want to be thinking about when no. you are making a long form object. A film, right. Right. <laughs> and so how was it like with people pleaser like cuz obviously I have seen clips of the show on social media yeah. like do you think about that as you're working on it? Like, do you get to pick what goes up? Or is it sort of more like, I don't love thinking about that and I would rather not? I will say, when I'm writing like a stand-up bit, I'm not like, is this good for TikTok? Yeah. But when I had this special, the production company did a really nice job of being like, here's five to seven little 30-second to one-minute clips that we clipped out and think would do well on social. And they captioned them for me. And that was really nice. And and then I've since have like kind of looked at a few more and been like, oh, I think this could work on its own a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I will, when I travel to a different city lately, what I've been trying to do is like the couple of minutes of like local jokes yeah. or like, oh, I've never been here before. This is what I thought St. Louis would be like. And this is my experience. <laughs> or like, this is what happened to me today on the way to mm-hmm. the club from my hotel. Like I saw this weird little thing and that stuff that maybe like, is it going to stick around for when I record the special, yeah. but like was delightful to the crowd. And like, you know, I, I don't want to like say it every night in every city um, because it was like specific to this moment. I, I There's not that much to say about it. That kind of thing. It feels like it's very natural to like mindfully record and then preserve and share. Mm-hmm. Um, and to ask a process question, you mentioned like perhaps sure. telling a joke about something that happened to you on the way to the theater. Um, to put a little more context to the question, like for instance, I have friends who work in animation who like can no longer watch animated things because they can't like turn off that part of their brain where they're just working oh, sure. constantly. And I want to know with you when you're figuring out what you want to build a joke around or a story around. Do you think you're constantly on or is it a matter of like sort of sitting down later on and being like, oh, like maybe this could work? Or is it always like, oh, like maybe this one? I've done a little better job of like being a person (laughs) the last few years. But I'll still go through times where I'm like performing a lot and like touring a lot and generating a lot of new material where like it will kind of be that like I can hear the the whirring of the motor Mm -hmm. when I'm like, I just want to watch this movie, man. Like, I don't want to be thinking about like Willem Dafoe and like his, the spelling of his name and trying to make a joke. I just want to like enjoy the movie. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing better at that. But I think like a big, it's, it's a little tricky to turn off entirely because a big part of the job is like noticing. That's like so much harder sometimes than writing the joke like noticing the interesting thing. So you kind of do have to keep that filter on a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's like a little bit more catch and release. I think this is <laughs> and st- like, this might not make any sense. I'm just restyling it, but like a little more of that, like meditation idea of like, you notice the thought 
you you let it go if it's not a thing you want to like really sit with and and churn on right like this isn't a big enough fish i'm gonna let it go instead of like i don't know like feeding it and getting it bigger (laughs) was there a time where you felt like that was sort of a problem for you yeah i like can't pinpoint when it was and Mm. and i i imagine my like best recollection was it was in kind of periods of like creative and career striving yeah like I need something to be the thing that gets me to the place I want to go. And yeah. that's like a bad feeling, I think. It's like such a um, like mania to it of yeah. like it, – it's like when you – the feeling of like desperately trying to make a person who you're not convinced likes you like you but for <laughs> your career. And yeah. what a horrible way to be and a way that I was for a period, I think. What do you think got you over it? It's similar to the just feeling comfortable on stage, like a level Mm. of gaining comfort with my skill level. And then like, you know, everyone will tell you the healthy thing is that you can't do this work for the external validation. But what they don't tell you is that that part also feels pretty good. So like, (laughs) I think having enough of like, oh, I've worked and I will work again and I have good relationships with my peers and Mm I am financially stable at the present. I think that feeling of like life stability and creative stability made, helped me feel a little less like, like I need a hit now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's tough because it's, as you say, like having some stability is what allows you is what most easily allows you to kind of get out of that cycle. But Mm -hmm that cycle tends to occur most often when you do not have stability because you are striving towards it. Or at least that's how I tend to feel about it. Yeah, I, I think definitely. I and, and it's like, some of it is like the kind of internal going like, I don't have to want everything. I don't have to fear that what I have is about to go away. I will come up with worthwhile creative mm-hmm. work in the future, right? Some of it is internal, but also just like, the doing it really mm-hmm. helps, you know, like having people, not industry validation necessarily, like whatever, whatever the industry is at this point, but like having friends and peers that are like, I like what you're doing. And like, I like working with you and we, we collaborate well. And, you know, even that kind of stuff is so soothing and, and more soothing, honestly, like having the people that you like and respect believe in you and be kind to you. Like there's so many moments throughout my career that I think of like when, when I used to get really stressed out on stage and this was not just unique to me, but my friend, Mike Kaplan, who I know from Boston and is in Brooklyn Mm. now would at open mics, you, when you you go, you next, and I go, yeah, and you go have fun. And that like meant even just that was like, Mm. oh yeah, have fun. Like making sure the goal is like having fun and feeling satisfied with the work I'm doing rather than like, if this doesn't sell, I'm finished. I'll never work again (laughs) in this town. It's like, so again, when, when, especially when the financial pressure is not coming from the creative work, Mm -hmm. like when I had another job, it's like, well, who gives a shit if this joke doesn't work out? Like, I don't have to, like, if I saw like a guy fall off a skateboard into a truck full of pies and I can't think (laughs) of a way to like write a joke that's funnier than the thing. It's like, who cares? Yeah. And now, before we let you go, this is a bit of a pie-in-the-sky question, but I'm so thrilled to hear that you are working on a new special, and I can't wait to see it. Do you have for yourself a sort of goal timeline where you're like, if everything worked out the way that I wanted it to, this is when the world would see it? So I'm touring pretty heavily through the late spring, early summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I'm going all over the place. Um, Wilmington, North Carolina is first. I'm going to Philly, Spokane, Seattle next month, up like the California coast in July. So all over the country, truly, at joshcondelman.com slash schedule. I also have, I'm sorry to delve into plugs. Um, No, I love it. I I highly encourage anybody to go if you can. Oh, thank you. I write a weekly newsletter called That's Marvelous, and it's fun pep talks, like funny pep talks um, every week, and it's free. And I also put all my dates in there. So like if Twitter, like if Elon Musk uh, decides like he (laughs) wants to see if he can fit an entire server in his butt, like as a joke, and then it turns (laughs) off all of Twitter like that. I have this newsletter that I that I write and and I all my info for like come see me here's where you can watch it when I'm on the here when I'm on the radio and stuff that's that's all there and my yeah. hope is to record maybe October maybe November and then I think 
it seems like if that's the case, mm-hmm. it would be like first quarter 2024 would be when I hope to have it out. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see it. And for those Thank of you, you listening, again, go see Josh while he's on the road. Go to the special taping if you can. And People Pleaser is currently, I believe, free on YouTube and also available anywhere where you can stream video. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Josh. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure. Coming up next, Karen and I will talk about the idea and role of persona in one's craft. Stick around. Karen, I loved that interview so much, and I'm glad you covered something that I'm really interested in, which is the idea of persona, who you (laughs) present yourself to be in your work. Obviously, this is a crucial thing for stand-up comedians because they're sort of acting, but they're playing themselves or a version of themselves, and their work is scripted, but also improvised. It's extremely complicated. But as a writer, you have a persona too, right? Kind of like... How have you thought about who you are on the page and what that voice is like versus who you are off the page? I honestly haven't thought about it very much, which Mm -hmm. which feels sort of funny to say. Like when I was a full-time critic, the line between me on the page and me in my private life was a lot thinner than it is now that my focus is more on fiction and screenwriting. Mm -hmm. But I think I also had a bit of an added buffer of not necessarily having to talk about myself. Like criticism is essentially just presenting your opinion of something else and then backing it up with with an argument. So I don't necessarily have to delve into anything personal to do that. Although it's a field that definitely leaves you room to do so. And I certainly have from time to time, because again, it's your personal opinion. But it's not like the focus is on something that I've necessarily experienced or something more personally significant all the time. Mm -hmm. That said, the question of voice, I think, like, is definitely something that plagues a lot of writers, where it's like, does this sound like me? And that's something that you just come to over time, I think, where, like, when you're writing it, you're like, this feels comfortable. Or when you read it back, you're like, oh, this does not sound like me. This doesn't sound right. Yeah. And all of this talk about voice and persona made me mm-hmm. think of social media because, mm-hmm. you know, everyone on social media is kind of a performer. And it's it's like Twitter especially is a very comedic space like everyone is kind of a comedian and has to ask those same questions that Josh does like is this in my voice what is my Twitter comedian voice Mm -hmm. and you know you're on Twitter and you're funny on Twitter like you make jokes (laughs) on Twitter and I'm wondering if you've thought about that part of your job and and I ask because posting on social media is part of all of our jobs nowadays and uh you know a lot of people probably face this issue of like what should i sound like (laughs) yeah i I really think of my twitter voice as an an honest extension of myself like i don't Mm -hmm. tweet anything that i don't think i would wouldn't say in real life and Mm -hmm. i don't tweet anything solely for the sake of drumming up engagement or controversy or anything like that which i don't think is a really productive mindset like the Mm -hmm. the accounts that i've come across that are so transparently about engagement, like become jokes after a while, which is I, I don't yeah. think what anyone really wants to be on social media. Yeah. And frankly, I'd say that I'm I think I'm on the stricter or maybe more cynical side when it comes to assessing Twitter personas. Like there are a few people that I find really awful on social media that I've had mutual friends say like, oh, but they're so nice or they're not like mm. that in real life. But it's not like that awfulness is coming from nowhere. Like, because if anything, I feel like the veil that social media affords people lets them feel like they can be more of their true self. Where like, this is really the root of trolling culture, where it's like, no one's seeing my face. There's no, as far as I can tell, real life consequence, so I can be as mean as I want. And I think it's useful to keep in mind that even if you're being performative or otherwise faking a certain kind of personality online, it does still reflect on you. Like, it's not a totally separate entity from you. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And it it seems like a lot of this and and Josh touched on this a little bit, figuring out your persona does sometimes involve dialing up certain parts of yourself and dialing mm-hmm. down. And as you were saying, some people could choose to dial up maybe the darker parts of themselves yeah. and become a little bit of a reality show villain or something. <laughs> and, and that's like what they're deciding to put forth. Yeah, exactly. But, but that's a bold and, and risky choice. But that reminds me of what Josh was saying, like, 
I think this balance needs to be struck where mm-hmm. Josh was acknowledging that his offstage persona and his onstage persona are different, mm-hmm. but it's also important for him to remain authentic. And he said it feels really weird when he's suddenly doing a joke that seems like something he would never actually say. And that right. was something that tripped him up early in his career. Have you ever felt maybe earlier in your career, like mm-hmm. the awkward feeling of of writing something or doing some kind of work where you're like, I'm doing this because it kind of works, but it, it doesn't feel like me. It has happened to me. Although weirdly, I would say like one was mid-career and one is like more recently. Where, But it's mostly been a case of having something imposed on me rather than me doing something and being like, oh, actually, this doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. For instance, like I've luckily only had a couple of times where I've been assigned a piece that I don't agree with or had an editor try to assign me a piece that I don't agree with mm. um, where he's like oh you should write about how this episode sucked and I was like I don't think that it did so I don't want to write that and I've also had this happen to me a couple times where an editor has sort of over edited my piece to mm. be in their voice Yeah. so the writing doesn't feel like mine anymore which is kind of a bigger problem because when you see it you're like Oh, like there's kind of more steps you have to take rather than like seeing an assignment that you clearly don't agree with and just being able to say, no, I don't want to take part in that. Because when you're in of the process of writing something already and it gets edited like this, it's like, what am I going to do? Um, has this ever happened to you? I mean, I, I think I've admitted this to you once, but there was a period of time when I, I was trying to do stand-up comedy mm-hmm. in New York. I was going to open mics and stuff, and I was really interested in this as a craft. And I, I really did relate to some of the stuff that... Josh was saying where he would come up with bits that worked. They got the laugh that you want to get, but right. it doesn't feel like something you would say. You feel kind of phony delivering it. That was something I felt all the time and probably a lot of comics at an amateur level do because you really just like, you want to get the crowd to laugh. That is like your top priority. Right. And finding your voice is the second part. <laughs> and it's tricky because it's it's just that. It's finding something that's already there. It's, it's learning yeah. how to sound like yourself and be yourself. And that only comes with lots of experience. I think I could have kept at it and got there. Uh, So you got to stick with it. You got to log a lot of hours to the point where you start sounding like yourself and you start feeling like yourself. Right. Finally, I am so glad that you asked Josh about what it's like moving through the world as a comedian. (laughs) As I mentioned, I used to try to pursue Mm -hmm. this art form and that was like a big big problem for me, actually. Like, I I know that sort of desperate feeling of sort of always being on the lookout for new material or material Mm -hmm. that was better than everything else I had. And it created this, like, hypervigilance that actually put me in a mindset that probably wasn't great for comedy. I think it's possible Mm -hmm. to, like, try too hard in situations like that. Um, So to put the ball back in your court, You've been a professional writer for a long time now. You have written cultural criticism, movie reviews, and lately you've been writing for the screen. How do you make sure that you, number one, can be open to ideas, you know, where you're moving through the world in a way where you can be inspired, but also that you don't self-sabotage with anxiety and desperation? (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good question. I would say like a lot of my advice is maybe a little bit outside facing, like make sure that you have a good support system of friends and loved ones and peers around you have some other activity that you can turn to. Don't make this your entire life. And also don't be afraid of just doing bad work. And I mean this in a bad draft sense, not in a bad final product sense, Yeah, because you can go back and polish whatever you were working on later or just throw it away if you really don't like it. But continuing to do something is often valuable practice but also like make sure that you're not burning yourself out by doing this. To that end, I almost think it was useful that I had a day job when I started doing film criticism because then the yeah. criticism wasn't the end all be all of my life. Like the only thing I really had to succeed at was my day job so that I could pay rent and for groceries and everything else. And if I could make film criticism work on the side, then that was a bonus, if that makes sense. Right, right. One final question. I also loved that you 
expressed a fondness for callbacks in comedy. Mm-hmm. Callbacks are hilarious. They are them. like, it's an easy way to win over a crowd if I am in it. <laughs> and I think our brains just kind of crave repetition a little bit. Callbacks remind me of like a refrain in a song. It gives us mm. this nice, pleasant structure and it it helps something stick in our memory better. I'm wondering, have you ever incorporated callbacks into any of your writing or mm. anything like that where you sort of use a structure that repeats a little bit and feels satisfying to the audience. I feel like I've I've done and seen it done in reviews, not always in a way that feels as satisfying as it will during like a comedy special or something more active. But the <laughs> whole room doesn't stand up and applaud. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but cultural criticism in particular is when you really boil it down, essay writing, which yeah. demands, I think, a sort of callbacky structure in that not all essays have to do this. And often like experimentation is good with the form, but on a bare essentials level, you state your point, you back it up, and then you wrap it up. <laughs> Yeah. In terms of screenwriting, I think it's a little easier to make a recurring bit pop, like when the audience sees an item come back and can place it from earlier. Yep. You're basically sort of like placing clues that will become rewarding for people who've been observant, I think. Oh, yeah. It'll it'll make the viewers feel smart for remembering something, which I am a big fan of as a viewer. (laughs) Yeah. And also, like, I like that a lot more than the kind of hand-holding that I think a lot of bigger media does these days, where Uh it's like, no, like, trust your audience, they'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode of Working. And just one more reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves, Culture Gab Fest, that's a show I also produce, and of <laughs> course, this show, Working. And you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash workingplus. Thank you so much to Josh Gondelman for being our guest this week and to our producer, Cameron Drews. Our producer and co-host, I guess, this week. Oh, yeah. But anyway, we'll be back next week with Isaac's conversation with opera singer Ryan Speedo-Green. Until then, get back to work. <laughs> <laughs>